Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's April 8th, 2019 in Auckland, New Zealand and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 15, Description of the Kingdom of God, Text 43. Tasyara Vinda Nayanasya Padara Vinda Injauka Mizra Tulsi Makarandavayu Antargata Swavirarena Chakaratesham Sangshobha Makshara Jusama Tasya of him, Aravinda Nayanasha, of the lotus-eyed Lord, Para Aravinda, of the lotus feet, Kinjalka, with the toes, Mizra, mixed, Tulasi, the Tulasi leaves, Makaranda, fragrance, Vayuhu, breeze, Antagata, entered within, Swa-vivarena, through their nostrils, Chakara, made, Tesham, of the Kumaras, Sankshobhyam, agitation for change, Akshara, oh sorry, Akshara Jusam, attached to the impersonal Brahman realization, Api, even though, Chichitanvaho, in both mind and body. Srila Prabhupada's translation, and this is a very often quoted, famous verse. When the breeze carrying the aroma of tulsi leaves from the toes of the lotus feet of the personality of Godhead entered the nostrils of those sages, they experienced a change both in body and in mind, even though they were attached to the impersonal Brahman understanding. Purport. It appears in this verse that the four Kumaras were impersonless, or protagonists of the philosophy of monism, becoming one with the Lord. But as soon as they saw the Lord's features, their minds changed. In other words, the impersonless who feels transcendental pleasure in striving to become one with the Lord is defeated when he sees the beautiful transcendental features of the Lord. Because of the fragrance of his lotus feet, carried by the air and mixed with the aroma of Tulasi, their minds changed. Instead of becoming one with the Supreme Lord, they thought it wise to be devotees. Becoming a servitor of the lotus feet of the Lord is better than becoming one with the Lord. Tasyara Vinda Nayanasya Padara Vinda Kinjalka Antargatas Chakaratesham 
When the breeze carrying the aroma of tulasi leaves from the toes of the lotus feet of the personality of Godhead entered the nostrils of those sages, they experienced a change both in body and in mind, even though they were attached to the impersonal Brahman understanding. So in this world, in this body, we have kind of a battle going on for control of the mind between our senses and our intelligence. So Srila Prabhupada said the mind needs to follow some superior dictation. And when that superior dictation is coming from the intelligence and the intelligence is in line with the Lord, we're happy. When the dictation is coming from the senses, we're unhappy. And we all experience this, right? Our intelligence says you've had enough to eat and our senses say, but that dessert looks really good. Right? Our intelligence says you know when you want to wake up in the morning and so you need to go to bed now and our senses say it'll just be another half an hour. And sometimes it's very severe things. Right? That somebody goes for some illicit affair or steals some money. But it's always this war between the intelligence and the senses, isn't it? The intelligence says, that's not yours, keep your hands off of it, you're going to get in trouble, and the senses say, but I want it, and it's here, and nobody will know, and so forth. And whether it's a little battle, like over a piece of cake, or whether it's a big battle over, you know, the beautiful intern in your office, it's the same kind of problem. Hmm? And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, that even one of the senses can dissuade the mind from following the intelligence. Even one of the senses. So we have the example of Visramrita, who was such a great yogi that he was meditating underwater. Now if we find this a little unbelievable, we should know that even today there are yogis who can go in a cataleptic trance for a few days, where they appear to be dead. There was one one man called Wolf Messing. He was a, a German Jew, and when Hitler became powerful, he left Germany, and Stalin gave him shelter. And he became actually very good friends with Stalin. So he had traveled to India and met these yogis who could go into cataleptic trances for up to three weeks. And he found that he had the mystic ability to do the same thing for about three days. And so the way he supported himself as a teenager and as a young man, was he worked for a wax museum as a wax dummy. So he would go into a cataleptic trance for the weekend and they would put him on exhibit. And of course he was a very realistic wax dummy because he wasn't a wax dummy. He had many other echoing, echoing, echoing. Is that better or worse? It's better. Oh, okay. Great, sounds worse to me, but if it sounds better to you. So he had many interesting mystic powers, which we're not going to get into today because we're not talking about mystic powers. Uh, but so Vishramrita Muni, he was able to stay underwater for many days, many years. Like today, you can find yogis who can stop, apparently stop their breathing for three weeks. So he could do that for many years and stay underwater to be in a meditative trance. So if you're familiar with Astanga Yoga, one of the eight parts of Astanga Yoga is Prachitara, where you withdraw your senses, you withdraw your awareness from the world. But most people can't withdraw their senses to the point that they stop breathing for a few weeks. Anyway, so he's underwater, and he hears some jingling noise. And he thinks, that sounds like jewelry jingling, like if you wear several bangles, they'll jingle against each other, or if you wear bells on your feet, like we see the Indian, the traditional classical Indian dancers, they wear bells on their feet so that when their feet hit the ground, there's this sound, not only from the sound of their foot on the ground, but from the bells. So he hears this jingling, and he says, sounds like jewelry. And he said, it sounds like a woman's jewelry. It sounds like the kind of jewelry a woman would wear. I mean, used to be like when Krishna appeared on the earth 5,000 years ago, the men also wore jewelry, but I guess they didn't wear jingling jewelry. Though Krishna would wear ankle bells. But anyway, 
So it sounds like a woman's jewelry. And so although he was meditating, uh, he broke his meditation, came out of the water, and he saw that this was indeed a woman. And he forgot all about his meditation and consorted with the woman. So just by hearing. And here we have smell. So I travel a lot. I spend a good portion of my life on airplanes and in airports. And in every airport, when you get off the plane, pretty much in every airport, you walk through the duty-free shop. And they're selling, of course, alcohol and tobacco, but they're also selling a lot of perfume. Right? So pretty much every few days, I'm walking through this duty-free shop where they're selling perfume. So uh, with, my own, with my own worship, I can't really travel with liquid perfume in glass bottles. First of all, you can only bring so many liquids through security. And second of all, having some oil in a glass bottle is a little dangerous in your luggage. So I make, uh, now I make it myself. I make my own solid perfume out of beeswax and chia butter and different fragrances. But for a while I was purchasing a solid perfume. And I, I went up to one of these shops, I think it was in the UK, and I said, do you have any solid perfume? She said, I've never, never heard of that, you know. Turned out she thought I was saying salad perfume <laughs> with my American accent. But, uh, Anyway, so people are buying these perfumes. <coughs> Why are they buying these perfumes? Because just a fragrance can bewilder your mind. Yes? So you just smell the woman's fragrance <coughs> or the man's fragrance. You know, they sell also these uh, perfumes for men, manly fragrance. And they've, they've done so many experiments that actually we do become attracted by naturally occurring fragrances of the opposite sex, yes? What are they called? Pheromones? So there's, there's been so many experiments done, you know, they take some t-shirts that some guy sweated in and they have the female volunteers smell the t-shirts and they do this kind of, you know, that's the sort of thing that uh, these behavioral scientists, <laughs> they do that and they find that people respond differently to different kinds of smells and that we will choose our mate to some degree based on smell. And of course in the animal kingdom, the smells can make the other animals go completely crazy, yeah? Right? The, the female animal puts out a certain smell and then we were just recently in India and we were seeing at Govardhan Hill these three bulls like chasing this cow all over Govardhan Hill. You know? So this, this smells, right? Isn't it? Or a sound, you hear some beautiful music, or some, somebody singing very beautifully. So we have this situation here in this world, and in fact with each of these senses, we all have experience with these senses that they evoke an emotional state, right? That they're called triggers or sometimes anchors. So how many of us have a certain smell that when we smell that, it triggers an emotional state in us? How many of you have that? Most people have that with a smell. What about a certain kind of food? Certain kind of food, how many of you have that with a certain kind of food? Certain song, certain music, right? Certain place, what about a certain place? Yes. So we, we all have this, pretty much every human being has these certain sensory inputs Right? Maybe you smell cinnamon and it's like, oh, Grandma. Yeah, so we all have these certain sensory inputs that trigger in us an emotional state. And materially, this phenomena can be a problem for us. Right? If we have some positive trigger with a certain sensory input, then we'll keep repeat, trying to repeat that experience, even if it's not favorable. And if we have a negative trigger with a certain sensory input, then we'll avoid that situation even if we don't need to. And these senses can carry away our intelligence. Krishna says like a boat, it has a strong wind, and the wind carries the boat hither and thither. So we may be surprised that the same phenomena works in a positive way, spiritually. There's many things wonderful about, I think, anyway, or I wouldn't be here, about this Krishna conscious philosophy and Krishna conscious way of life. 
But I feel that the most wonderful and the most amazing is our philosophy of personalism, which is the main point of today's verse and purport, that God is a person. So I was uh, giving a class at the loft yesterday, and there were many people who had come to a, a Hare Krishna program for the first time. And afterwards, there was one woman speaking to me that she was really having a hard time grasping the idea of personalism. She said, you said something about Krishna smiling. She says, I, I just, I don't really understand that. You know, because her idea of Krishna was just the light or the energy or something like that. So how, how can, how can the, our source smile? What does that mean? You know, she just, she just really couldn't wrap her head around that. So this concept that the ultimate truth is personal and that we are all personal that the ultimate truth has form and senses and that we all have form and senses. And we have a hard time grasping this because our idea of form and senses is so mixed. You know, we have positive experience with, with our senses and our form, certainly, but we also have correspondingly negative experiences. We smell bad things and see ugly things and, you know, taste disgusting things and... Our body gives us pleasure, but our body gives us pain as well. In fact, it, it seems like our body has more ability to give us pain than it has to give us pleasure. And our form very, is very limiting for us. You know, so today I, I was calling people, I had to call people in London before they went to bed. But I couldn't be in London and be in Auckland at the same time. I mean, through technology, I could kind of pretend that I was in London at the same time. But I couldn't actually be there. My form limits me, right? My arm is here and it's, it's not here. And when I was a kid in school, I used to wish so many times because I was so bored in school that I could be in school because that was what I was expected to be by my parents and society. But I could have another part of myself at the beach. You know, I was always like, why can't I expand myself and have another person at the beach? while I'm sitting in the classroom. So that's our experience of form. I can only be one place, right? And we, ha we have this, sometimes we want to go to five things at once, isn't it? I want to go here and I also want to go here and I want to stay home and do this and I want to talk to this and I have to choose. And then our form is limited in other ways. I had a dream once that I could fly and I woke up and I tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> you know? Or yesterday at the loft, I was definitely the oldest person there. Anyway, so during the kirtan, people were dancing in ways that, frankly, I, I really can't do anymore. I, I tried, you know, and I could do it a little bit, but it wasn't very effective. So our form is, is limiting us in various ways. Right? There's things we want to eat that we can't eat, things we want to do that we can't do. So we think that... You know, if there's form and personality and senses spiritually, it will similarly be limiting and be full of misery. So sometimes we think, well, let me just become impersonal. And in fact, this concept of God as impersonal and ourselves as just becoming one with God in an impersonal way is very prevalent right now on the planet. There's basically two main ideas of God. One idea of God is that it's sort of personal, but God doesn't really have a face or a form, but it's kind of personal anyway. You know, there's some sort of heaven, like the Muslims have this idea, there's some sort of heaven where you can drink some intoxicants and enjoy some sort of romantic activities. But they don't have any idea of God as having a form, which is kind of interesting. You know, somehow you're enjoying all these activities, and what is God doing? I don't know, he's just sort of there. You know, according to our scriptures, what they're describing is a material heaven, not a spiritual existence at all. And then, you know, of course, there's many different sects in each religion, so we're just speaking in a general way. But usually with Christians also, their, their idea of God doesn't really have a face. So there's Jesus who has a face, but God, you can't see his face. And again, maybe I'm there with my grandparents and my auntie in heaven. And what exactly I'm doing, I don't know. Of course, it's a problem if you didn't like your auntie. That might be a problem. You know, it's like, do I really have to be with my family forever in heaven? You know, maybe, maybe I was happy to move out of the house. I don't know. 
So like with the Mormons, you have the wedding in the temple, it means you're married eternally. And I'm wondering how many people regret that and say, okay, one life on earth, all right, but do I have to be married to you forever? <laughs> so anyway, they may have some idea of some sort of personalism in an afterlife, but generally it's a little vague, and generally it's centered on material personalism. You know, that you're still the same person with the same form. Like I've said to the Jehovah's Witnesses, they say you get resurrected out of the grave. And I'm like, but at what age? You know, suppose I die when I'm 92. Do I have to be eternally 92? Or suppose you die when you're two months old, you know, are you eternally two months old? At what age do you get resurrected? And then I said, suppose you don't like your body. Suppose, you know, your nose is too big or something or you have hair that goes all over the place. I mean, suppose you don't like it. You have to live with it forever. And they'll say, well, you'll like it. You know, so it's generally very vague ideas of personalism, not particularly well thought out, often not very scripturally based. A lot of the things that these people propose is not clearly in their scriptures, it's extrapolation. And it's still very much based on this body, thinking in, in some afterlife or some eternal life, I'm still going to have this particular body, I'm going to be a man or I'm to, if I'm a man in this life, I'm going to be a woman if I'm a woman in this life. You know, and I'm going to have the same color skin that I have and so forth and the same family relationships. And then their idea of God as a person is very vague. Now it's interesting because in all these traditions, if you go back to the origin of the tradition, you'll find that there are personalistic descriptions of God. You know, if you look in the Bible in the Song of Solomon, it actually says that the fragrance of the Lord and the name of the Lord is like a bottle of perfume that's been poured out on the ground. So they're describing the name of the Lord in terms of the senses. And in terms, as we see here in this verse, in terms of the sense of smell. But if you ask the people who read the Bible, the Christians and the Jews, what does this mean, that the name of the Lord is like perfumed oil poured out? They'll say, oh, that's some metaphorical poetry. It's not actually a literal experience. But we're very fortunate in that the Vedic literatures do give us this description and that we do have teachers who say this isn't just poetry. Yes, it's very poetic. It's Sanskrit poetry in terms of the literary ornaments and the form, but it's not simply describing metaphors and similes, but it's describing a reality that the Lord actually has toes. And again, you know, if you look at the Bible, it says that God wrote on the tablets of stone with his finger. And when I asked in the seminary, when I was a seminary student, and I said, so God has a finger, and they said, no, not like that. <laughs> but here in the Bhagavatam, when it says the Lord has toes, if someone says, well, he doesn't really have toes, does he? We say, yes, he really has toes. He really has toes. And his toes smell so wonderful that even if you're already liberated, even if you're already enlightened, you'll become attracted by the smell of his toes. And again, when, when people are, are very habituated to an impersonal understanding, this may seem rather odd. I mean, I'll just say very frankly, Ravindastrup said he had exactly the same experience. After I moved into the ashram, you know, and officially joined the Hare Krishna movement, I still had a conception that God was ultimately impersonal. I thought that Krishna, the form of Krishna, was some temporary manifestation of the impersonal. And it wasn't until I was, and I had already been practicing Krishna consciousness to some extent when I was in university, but when I moved into the ashram, I still thought that way. And it was after two weeks when I heard a devotee saying, no, the impersonal light comes from Krishna, he's the origin, that I went, oh, it goes the other way. The origin is personal, and the white light and the energy comes from the person, not the other way around. And I was very surprised to read many, many years later in a Back to Godhead article, where Ravindra Srupabhu had exactly the same experience. 
where it took him a couple weeks to understand that he was so surprised that the devotees were saying that the ultimate truth is personal. The ultimate truth has senses, and in the ultimate truth, we all have senses. And with our senses, we interact with the senses of God. Now, Srila Prabhupada often makes the point that those who are perfect in an impersonal understanding will find the personal to be higher and more relishable because there's relationships and there's form and there's senses and there's interaction. So I mentioned this in one of my classes, but I don't think it was here. One of my classes here in Auckland, but I don't think it was in this room, so I'll tell this again. So there's a, a, a woman who became very, very famous. She's an Indian uh, ethnic background, and she was living in Singapore. And she was following, her religion was impersonalistic. It was some combination of impersonal Hinduism and Buddhism. And she got very sick with cancer. She battled it for years and years, and after many years of trying so many treatments for the cancer, finally she lost the battle. All of her organs shut down. Her entire body was, it was cancer throughout her body. All of her organs failed, and she died in the hospital. When she died, she had what we call a near-death experience, where she became one with the great light, the great energy of Brahman. And it seems from what she was describing, she must also have merged to some extent with what we call the Paramatma, the form of the Lord who's all-knowing, the creator of the universe, the master, the witness, the one who is all-pervading in every atom and in everyone's heart. And she was describing her experience there. She said, all of a sudden she knew everything. And she felt one with everyone and everything. But she still had some sense of separateness to some extent. Because she was saying that if she wanted to know what anyone was thinking, she felt like she became them. And she could fully understand them from within. And after being in that experience for some time, however, she said she had a desire to have relationships with senses and form. And because of that, she came back to her body. And interestingly enough, within a few days, her body completely healed. So she's very famous because her case was very medically documented. That she had had her whole body riddled with cancer and all the organs shut down. And after dying and reviving, she had this absolutely miraculous healing. So she's been on a lot of TV shows and she's written a book. I was at a devotee's house in Bahrain where they had this book and I read, I didn't read the whole thing, but I read certain sections of it. And what really struck me was that here was someone who had this experience of oneness and said, I'd rather have a material body and material senses so I can have relationships. That having relationships was more important to her than this unlimited spiritual bliss. And this fact is something that Srila Prabhupada says again and again and again and again. That those who merge into the Brahman, those who have this experience of oneness with the Lord in energy, generally don't stay there. Avasuddha buddhiya. They, they, intelligence is not actually completely purified. So they don't stay in that environment. But they generally come back to a material form for material relationships. And this, is, this actually happens. Now in this case, with the four Kumaras, they didn't come down to material relationships. They went up to spiritual relationships. So this also sometimes happens. Generally, those who enter into Brahman or Paramatma come back down to material relationships because they don't know that there is such a thing as spiritual form and spiritual relationships. They have no knowledge of it. They have no access to it. Therefore, when that desire for relationships and senses manifests, they come back to the limited, mixed with suffering, difficult relationships of this world. But we do have, of the four people who come to Krishna, one of them is those who are already realized in Brahman. So those are, there, there are those who want material happiness, they come to the Lord because they want money, or they want prestige, or something, they want fame. There are those who come to the Lord to get free of distress. 
They want to get free of illness or something like that. There are those who come to the Lord because they're curious. I wonder what's going on in the world. I want to understand the origin, the purpose of life. And then there are very, very few, like these sages here, who are already merged into the white light, already merged into the unlimited energetic of the Lord, who somehow also find the Lord and say, ah, that's better. I want that. I want to go up. I mean, at least what I find in my teaching of Krishna consciousness throughout the world is that the people who are striving for this oneness are the most difficult to attract to Krishna consciousness. They'll come to our programs, they'll engage in kirtan, they'll take prasadam, but to make that step to personalism seems extremely difficult for most of them. They get so fixed on this idea that the ultimate spirituality is losing their identity and becoming one with the Lord. Now those who've actually achieved that oneness, they find out that it's not fully satisfying. So if people have actually achieved that, and I've only met a handful of people like that, I've met a lot of people, hundreds, who are trying for it, which of course it's very difficult, it's very, very difficult for somebody to merge into the Brahman or into the Paramatma. But I have met a few people who've actually achieved that. And those people are actually very open to Krishna consciousness. Because when they achieve it, they find, oh, this is wonderful compared to material suffering, but something's missing. Something really important isn't here. It's just like, you know, if you've had a really hard day or a hard week or a hard month, and I, I remember when I was uh, in Christchurch, and it was really cold. And the devotees I was staying with had this hot tub in their house. And you go in the hot tub, and you just completely relax. All your muscles just shh. The only thing I could do after I went in the hot tub was go to sleep. I didn't even have the energy to brush my teeth. I'm like, bad. So the next day I learned I had to brush my teeth first before I went on top. So, you know, if you've had a really hard day or hard week or hard month and you just go in this hot tub and you're just like, ah. Or you go swim in the ocean and you're just floating in the ocean. Ah, peace. But you can live in the hot tub. I mean, it's boring. So once you achieve this, this piece of Brahman, which is a million, zillion times more than some Christchurch hot tub on a cold day, but once you achieve this piece of Brahman, you're like, I don't just want to stay here. I want something more. And how unfortunate when people have to come back to material life because they don't know about something more. That's very unfortunate. Or when their ideas of personalism are all, you know, spiritual personalism are all mixed up with some material idea. You know, like I'm going to go to heaven and have a barbecue with my family or something. You know, they're just like, that's also very unfortunate. So what is this spiritual personalism? So even though the Lord has a form, His form is unlimited. It's not like because Krishna has a form, he can only be in one place at one time, just like the painting on the wall behind you there. So there's all those Krishnas. They're all the same Krishna. And each of his girlfriends is thinking, Krishna's only with me. Krishna's not with anybody else. He's sitting in, in the middle of the circle of so many of his friends hundreds, thousands of his friends. And they're all in a circle around them. And each of his friends thinks, Krishna's facing me. See, I can't do that with my limited form. If I'm looking at Tilakini, then I'm not looking at Guruvani. My peripheral vision doesn't even go that far. Right? And if I'm talking to Guruvani, then I'm ignoring Tilakini. There's one temple I used to lecture at regularly where during the Sunday feast there would be people behind the Vyasa sun. You know, if I wanted to look at them, I had to do this. 
So with Krishna, there's people behind him. And each one of them is seeing, Krishna's just looking at me, he's just facing me. He's just talking with me. That's not an ordinary form. And as when Krishna appeared as a little child and he was naughty, today if your child, if your little baby's naughty, you may put them in a playpen, right? Yes? Some of the Asoda didn't have a playpen. Their, their idea of restraining the child was you tie them to something, which I suppose today people would look down on, but it was a similar kind of idea. So she wanted to tie him to a, a, the grinding mortar so he couldn't get into any more mischief. And she, she couldn't get a rope around his waist, even though he was wearing a belt. So he had a belt. But when she went to tie a rope, it was short by a little bit. And she added another rope to it, and it was still short by the same amount. And she kept adding ropes, and she's taking the ribbons out of her hair and tying them, and her friends were all laughing. And they're bringing more ropes. And, and there was this huge rope, you know, as long as the temple room. And there was this little Krishna. And she couldn't get this huge rope when she went to put it around. It was a little bit too short. So that's not an ordinary form. Or when she looks in his mouth, when, when Krishna's friends say, Krishna's eaten some dirt, he put some dirt in his mouth, you have to clean out his mouth. Did you eat dirt? No, they're lying. Let me see. Okay. And not only was there some dirt, there was a whole earth planet was in his mouth. All the planets of the universe. The whole universe was inside of his form. So the whole universe is within inside the form of the Lord. That's not a limited form. And not only that, Panamanu Andantarastam. Panamanu means the smallest of the smallest of the smallest, like an atom. And he's there in his fullness within the atom. Okay, so if we try to picture this, so we can picture one of the one or the other, but not both together. We can picture that in every atom here there is the Lord, right? Everybody can make a mental picture of that. And we can kind of make a mental picture that within the Lord's form is the universe. That's a little hard because that means we're there too. But if we're going to have the whole universe within the Lord and he's within every atom of the universe and within him is the universe and again he's within the atoms of the universe and again within every atom where he is the universe is inside of him you just, you know, your brain short circuits. So that's not an ordinary form. Anangani yasya sakalandriya vrittimanti pasyanti panti kalayanti chiram chikanti ananda chinmaya sadhutvalani bigrahasya So each of his senses can do the work of any other sense. Actually, our spiritual forms are like that as well. So the Lord can smell with his eyes and taste with his toes. There's, there's a funny story of how when uh, my god-sister Yamuna was dressing the deities, she put Krishna's food on backwards so the holes for the flute were outside of his hand. And when one devotee brought it up to, to Yamuna, she said, Krishna can do anything with any part of his body, so he can play his flute. He can blow into his flute with his fingers. But the devotee wasn't satisfied and went, then went to Srila Prabhupada, who was there in the building at the time, said, Yamuna put Krishna's flute in backwards, and Prabhupada said, Krishna can do anything with any part of his body. Actually, our spiritual bodies are also like that, that we have interchangeable senses. Some people have that to some extent, even in this body, it's called synesthesia. There are people who can see music and taste colors. And it's, it's a mental condition that the people who have it like it. They don't want to be cured. They relish it. So anyway, this is not an ordinary form. And the sense perceptions of Krishna's form are also not ordinary. To perceive how the Lord smells, or how the Lord tastes, or how the Lord sounds, or how the Lord looks. These are not ordinary sense perceptions. And in fact, they can't be perceived at all with the materially covered senses. 
Now, what does a materially covered sense mean? It doesn't actually mean that it's just a physical eye or physical ear made of, you know, bones and blood and nerves. What it means is Krishna can't be perceived by senses that we're trying to use for our own enjoyment separate from him. And I've given this example before. And the reason is that because we don't want to perceive Krishna. When we don't want to perceive Krishna, the senses we are using to avoid him can't also perceive him because that's not what we want. So just like, you know, with children or teenagers, if they're doing something their parents don't want them to do, they hide from their parents. Yes? Yes? If the teenagers are playing video games instead of doing their homework, they go in their room and they close the door. Correct? Yes? They want to imagine that the parents are not in the house. Or they wait for a time when the parents go out of the house. Oh, when are you coming back, Mom? Oh, a couple hours. Oh, great. They don't want to see their mother and father. So when we want to try to enjoy separately from Krishna, when we want to be rebellious, then, our, then Krishna covers us so we are not able to perceive him because we don't want to perceive him. So until we want to perceive him enough, which doesn't have to be 100%, by the way, but until we want to perceive him enough, we cannot perceive him with these senses. Now, interestingly, we can start to perceive Krishna with our materially contaminated senses in such a way as to bring about the desire to use our senses in Krishna's service. And this particular aspect of sadhana bhakti is actually amazing. This is the whole concept, of course, of deity worship, of chanting the holy name, of offering prasadam. So I still have a desire to enjoy my senses separately from Krishna. I still don't really want to be aware of Krishna because he's going to interfere with my rebellion if I'm aware of him. But I start to get a little, little, little desire. Vishnu Chakravati Thakur says it's just a little trace. A little desire. I'd like to perceive God. It's very small. I have this huge, absolute desire to enjoy separately from him and this little, little desire to see. So Krishna says, okay, I'll manifest in a form that to you looks like another material object of your enjoyment. Because that's really all you can perceive in your state of rebellion. But you can start to become interested in serving this form. You can start to smell the incense offered to me and the scents that are put on me and the flowers that are put on me. You can start to see my form and my garments and my jewelry. You can start to taste me in the food that I've eaten. You can start to hear me in the scriptures and the sound of the holy name. You can even touch my form and dress me. And as we do that, our desire to actually perceive Krishna starts to grow. And as that desire grows, our desire to use our senses for our own independent enjoyment decreases. It's like, you know, when, when a cell of the body wants to enjoy independently from the body, that cell becomes what? Cancer. That's what, it, that's what cancer means. It means a cell of the body that says, I, I'm not working for the body anymore. I'm working for myself. And I'm even going to set up barriers so that the body's immune system can't bug me. But you know, sometimes, not always, but sometimes people with cancer, when they change their mentality, the cancer cells heal. You've heard of that, yes? It doesn't always work for everybody. It does sometimes work. And the person changes their mentality, and then the little cells say, you know, I'm not really happy being a cancer cell. 
There's, there's a lot of love throwing, flowing through this person's body, but I'm not accessing it because I put up these barriers and I'm just thinking about myself. Maybe I'll take down the barriers and join the rest of my fellow stomach cells or whatever it is, pancreatic cells, and be in harmony again. So it's just like that. When we start to become aware that there's this flow of, of love coming from the Lord, then we start turning and saying, oh, Maybe I want to go back to my original position. And gradually, gradually, as we become more and more attracted to the Lord, more and more interested in being in harmony with the Lord, we start realizing, hey, I'm a spiritual person. I'm I'm a soul. We start realizing our eternal spiritual form. It, It becomes not just, I'm not Mr. Patel, or I'm not, you know, whatever it is that we think we are. But it becomes, I am somebody else. I, I am a coward boy. I am a, one of Krishna's mothers, or I am one of Krishna's girlfriends, or I am maybe Krishna's flower. We realize who we are. Little by little by little. First, it's a vague thing. Oh, oh, I, I think, I, I kind of like, wow. And gradually, it becomes more and more specific, and more and more known to us who we are. And our real spiritual form starts awakening and becoming clear to us as our desires to have this interaction with Krishna get stronger and stronger and stronger. And finally, it's explained in Madhurya Kadambani that we start realizing that the Lord is within us. We start experiencing the holy name as Krishna. We start experiencing the deity as Krishna, not as marble or brass. We start experiencing the holy name not as a material sound. We start experiencing that Krishna is with us all the time and that we're having interactions in our heart. And finally, the Lord comes out of our heart like he did with Dhruva Maharaj and appears in front of us face to face. And we see him like we see anybody else. And at that time, Vishnu Chagavati Thakur says, we become overwhelmed with the beauty of the Lord. And all of our senses become like eyes. And we faint in ecstasy. And then the Lord revives us. And then we smell the fragrance of the Lord. And all of our senses become like a nose to smell this fragrance of the Lord. And again, in love, we faint. And then the Lord speaks to us. Maybe calls us by name. Said the Lord has a a voice very gentle but like the thunder of clouds and again we just all of our senses become like ears to hear the sound of the Lord and again we faint in in happiness and ecstasy and then the Lord touches us depending on our relationship he may touch us with his feet or his hands and we feel like all of our senses are touch receptors and the touch of the Lord is so soft and so delicate. All the warmth of the universe is coming from him. And then, and then Vishnu Chagavati Thakur says, and then for those in a romantic relationship with the Lord, he kisses them and they taste him. Of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says everybody can taste the Lord through the Lord's prasada. And then at the end, All of this is simultaneous. The Lord's beauty, his fragrance, his sound, his touch, his taste, everything. The devotee just wants to experience this over and over and over. And of course, this reciprocation is what gives the greatest happiness to Krishna. When we are taking our pleasure, not from trying to take his energy away from him, but when we are taking our pleasure in him. He wants to be the source of our happiness because actually he is the source of our happiness. It's like the difference between kids enjoying their parents' money and enjoying spending time with their parents. So the four Kumaras, having just one of these senses, just smelling the Lord, they immediately understood. Of course, before this they had been looking at the Lord, so they were seeing the Lord's beauty. But here, particularly with smelling the Lord, they're like, this is all I want. I don't want impersonalism. I want a loving relationship with the Lord. 
So our whole purpose of bhakti yoga is to bring out this attraction. To bring out this attraction. And not to be afraid. You know, because our material experience with senses and form and attraction is very mixed and often scary and we've often got into a lot of trouble in this world when our senses have overrided our intelligence. So we may be a little frightened of allowing ourselves to become attracted to the Lord. Who knows what will happen? Maybe I'll also lose my intelligence. Of course, when one gets attracted to the Lord, then one also is with the source of all knowledge and all wisdom. That kind of attraction uh, doesn't make us fall or become degraded, but it actually elevates us. And we should be doing, in our sadhana practice, we should be meditating like this. I'm in touch with the Lord's sound, with the Lord's smell, with the Lord's touch, with the Lord's beauty. And the more we meditate on that and the more we try to cultivate it, the faster that our actual spiritual personal nature will awaken. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions. Yes. Well, for the aspiring impersonalists, what's difficult is that they're, they're so enamored with this idea that spiritual is diametrically opposed to material in every respect. And it, it becomes such a deep belief on their part that when they hear about personalism, they put it in a material category immediately. For those who have achieved impersonal perfection, they don't know about the spiritual. They have no knowledge of it. So in, unless they come in touch with someone who has not, unless they come in touch with the Lord directly or with some servitor of the Lord who can inform them, they don't know. I mean, the way Prabhupada describes it in the 12th chapter, I'm not sure if it's in the purport to text 2, I think so. He describes that, you, you know, it's, it's very difficult to achieve impersonal enlightenment because you have to deny your personality and your senses. You have to just stop the mind, stop the senses, stop relationships, stop personality, which is very difficult. And then once you've done that, it's, it's very hard to go on to a personal relationship because you've killed everything. I mean, the, the example that I give is of my nephew who was... Uh, not in, in Krishna consciousness, but he was in another religious system. So he was going to a school that was just men. And they didn't, they were very strict. They didn't talk to any women at all. Their teachers were just men. And, you know, he had his own guru, you could say. And at a certain point, he approached his, his mentor's guru and he said, uh, you know, I'd like to get married. And so his, his teacher said to him, well, for all these years, you haven't looked at any women. But if we arrange to introduce you to a suitable girl, you're going to have to look at her. So that may be difficult. You know, if you spent maybe five, six years, I'm not going to look at a woman, I'm not going to look at a woman, I'm not going to look at a woman, I'm not going to look at a woman. And then finally someone introduces you, here's a nice young woman that you might, you know, you, you can meet her, you might consider marrying her, get to know her. It might be hard to look at her. You've trained yourself. You know, and when you look at her, it might be just like, It might be it might be difficult. So I, the same kind of thing. If you've trained yourself, no, you know, no thoughts, no feelings, no thoughts, no feelings, no desires, no thoughts, no feelings, no desires, no thoughts, no feelings, no desires. Now think about Krishna. Ah, it's hard. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. 
There's not a good answer for that. The reason is the same question is because there isn't a good way to answer that question. Because it's not reasonable. And we like to think of ourselves as being very reasonable beings. You know, we, we like to think of ourselves that we do things because we're smart and we're careful and we, we take the time. Um, actually, that, that game your husband lent me, yeah, which is based on this, this study of behavioral economics and how people predictively do foolish things. That, you know, human beings in general have certain predictable behavior patterns that are foolish, that don't make logical sense. So it's not that everything we do is logical. It's not that you can analyze like that. It's not that everything we do is based on intelligence. It's just, it's just not the case. If that were the case, nobody would smoke. Nobody would eat unhealthy food. Nobody would have abortions. Nobody would eat meat. People just wouldn't do that thing. I mean, probably 99% of wars wouldn't happen. Most wars are pretty illogical. So if you're going to say, why do people do these things? There's, there's generally not a very good answer. I mean, anytime anybody asks me, why did they do that? I'm like, there's not a, probably not an answer for that question. Not a satisfying answer. You can answer it, but it's not satisfying. The answer is because we're misusing our independence. But that's not a very intellectually satisfying answer. It just isn't. Even though we have experience, I would guess every day, that we do things that we on one level don't want to do. Yes? Don't most of us at least one time in a day do something that we don't want to do? Does that make the slightest bit of sense? We'll say, I don't want to be doing this. And we voluntarily do it. Arjuna asked that question in the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Why do we do things we know are wrong and we feel like we're being forced to? We feel like there's some outside agent that's forcing us against our will to do something. Whether it's as stupid and petty as looking at some cat video on Facebook or whether it's, you know, chatting with another man's wife or, you know, whatever it may be, whether, you know, whether it's a, a small, inconsequential thing or a very consequential thing, we all find ourselves doing things that we don't want to be doing. And while there's a pattern, there's discernible patterns to human behavior in this regard, there's not a logical or rational reason why we do it. The reason why we do it is that we want to rebel against God and be independent. That's why we do it. But that's not a, it's not a very intellectually satisfying explanation. It has to do with the three gunas, but it really has to do with us. You know, the three gunas are just ways in which we want to be rebellious. I mean, you know, if, if you want to escape your life for a while, so you might go see a movie, and you might go to a theater... And in the theater, it would be like these theaters that have, you know, ten different movies in them. That they're showing all at the same time. And so you could choose the horror movie. You could choose the nature documentary. You could choose the movie about Prabhupada. You could choose the romance movie. You could choose the shoot 'em up action film, whatever. You know, so you got these choices between what movie you want to see. So the modes are like that. If you want to forget that you're a soul, you want to forget that there's God, you want to forget, you know, you can choose what mode do I want to be influenced by? Or what combination of the modes do I want to be influenced by? So, you know, nobody's forcing you to go into a movie theater and buy a ticket. But once you buy your ticket and once you're in the movie, then in one sense, the movie forces you to think and feel in a certain way. 
if it's a well done movie. Where you, you know, that's why you went to the movies. I mean, not you particularly, but that's why a person goes to the movies. They're going there to forget their own life. That's their purpose. And so the movies are engineered to do that. that that's what they're doing. And they're engineered to control the viewers. Right? The director, the producer, the actors. Okay, at this point, we want the audience to cry. At this point, we want the audience to laugh. Understand? So when we say we're controlled by the modes, it's like that. We choose, oh, I'm going to pay my karma money, I'm going to pay my karma coins that I've been collecting, and I'm going to pay it to see this movie. Is that clear? So it looks like we are being very directly told that we should stop the class. So.